This is Carpe Consensus. Join hosts Ben Schiller, Danny Nelson, and Cam Thompson as they seize the world of crypto. Hello and welcome to Carpe Consensus. This is a podcast from the Coindesk Podcast Network and my name is Ben Schiller. I'm the features editor here at Coindesk and joining me today is Danny Nelson. Hi, Danny. Good morning. And Cam Thompson, she is a Web3 reporter here at Coindesk. Hi, Cam. Good morning. Wait, what's Danny's title? Danny didn't get a title today. I'm titleless. Titleless. Okay, so uh, Cam, I just wanted to ask you, what are you working on at the moment? Yeah, I'm working on some OpenSea news for tomorrow. So that is Tuesday. It's currently Monday when we're recording. So you'll know what that is by the time this episode goes live, which should be very interesting. And well, what is it? What is it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I guess we can talk about it. Um, so OpenSea, about a year ago, it acquired this NFT marketplace called Gem. So it's really targeted towards some of those users that have been you know, trading on Blur, which is the competitive marketplace. So what OpenSea is doing is they are rebranding their version two of Gem. So Gem V2 is now releasing to the public as OpenSea Pro. And it's going to be 0% creator fees, just like OpenSea switched to a couple weeks ago. But what OpenSea is doing is they're going to run this pro marketplace, OpenSea Pro, and then they're switching OpenSea, like classic OpenSea, back to 2.5% creator fees. And it should be really interesting to see how NFT trading volume goes into this new platform and if it's going to challenge Blur in any way that it historically has. That fragmentation reminds me of Coinbase and Coinbase Pro. Now, Coinbase Pro has been sunsetted into this other thing I don't understand, but the main idea was on Coinbase, normal, you paid rather high fees because you were basically buying and selling Bitcoin to and from the Bitcoin store. And then on Coinbase Pro, you were basically trading with other people, and that's where the fees would be really low. Now, it's not going to be like OpenSea has the OpenSea store of NFTs where you're buying right from OpenSea, right? It's still going to be trading to, between different people on both platforms? So from what I understand, on OpenSea and OpenSea Pro, it's still trading NFTs among other collectors. However, OpenSea Pro will have more features that allow you to do these massive floor sweeping trades that people have been doing on Blur. So buying a very large amount of NFTs at a time, buying very expensive NFTs as well. And overall, OpenSea, original OpenSea, will be still targeting those retail customers who are buying their first NFT, who are doing primary drops. It'll be more creator-focused, where OpenSea Pro will target professional traders in a way that OpenSea itself hasn't been able to do. All right, let's not get too far ahead of ourselves, because we're going to be coming back to some of the stuff in a minute. Just going to go through the running order today. We're going to get to some news that Danny's going to talk about from Arbitrum, which is an important layer to on Ethereum. And then we're going to have an interview with uh, Kathy Hackle, who is known as the godmother of the metaverse. And she's going to be talking about a metaverse fashion week, which took place recently uh, and was source of some uh, controversy. So let's get to it. Okay, we're going to get to Inside the Desk now. And Danny's going to start us off with uh, Arbitrum. Danny? Yes, we're starting off with a heavy dose of decentralization theater. I went to the theater this weekend and I saw the sausage being made and it was not pretty. Let me tell you why. Arbitrum, the Ethereum layer two that's been hot recently, just had a token airdrop, had its first attempt at governance and it went down in flames when Arbitrum basically posed questions to the community, such as where a billion dollars should go, that it had already decided the answers to. 
And it had to backtrack what it was saying and qualify everything. And it just left a lot of people with a really bad taste in their mouths where they thought that they were given a token, gave them governance powers. But in reality, they were just supposed to be ratifying decisions that had already been made. So I'd love to hear from you guys. You know, have you experienced decentralization theater in the past? Uh, what does it mean to you? And how, do you, how are you taking note of this Arbitrum situation? Yeah, I mean, I think we see decentralization theater again and again in crypto. Uh, there are actors who make claims for decentralization, trying to bring people into the system and give this sense of uh, economic democracy. Uh, and then you see various actors with privileged access. And I think this is another case of that. It's kind of a bait and switch between getting people to participate and then uh, a select group of people actually having special powers. So I think it's rather uh, destabilizing to crypto generally uh, and its message. You know, I always get sus. I always get very sus. Sussometer goes off, flashing red lights. The sussometer. I love it. The sussometer. It's a new term. We're coining it right now. And I think this perfectly applies to decentralization theater in terms of DAOs, specifically DAOs. Now, I don't know if people here listening, Danny knows, I used to cover DAOs a lot and look at these governance proposals and really try to parse out when something was going to pass, whether it was a proposal or whether there was some actor involved that might not have been exactly named, you know, in this DAO. And how DAOs work is a lot of times there is this C-suite that is operating, even though they're giving control to token holders to make these decisions. There's a C-suite and the C-suite has the ability to, you know, multi-sig. They're on the multi-sig, which essentially means they are able to approve some of these transactions that token holders are voting on. So that being said, sometimes that works in the case where people involved in the DAO actually do have power and they are able to make some of these calls. But in other cases, such as Arbitrum, it's really interesting because, you know, you might think that you have this authority, this agency by holding a lot of tokens and someone behind the scenes can just completely be manipulating that or making their own decisions that the DAO is not a part of. It's not a decentralized autonomous organization whatsoever the second that happens. So that's why I'm sus. Yeah. And to me, in reporting on this, the big issue that I see is like, all right, well, so I'm coming at this as a reporter. I see a proposal. I'm going to cover it as if the way that the crowd votes will determine the success or the failure of the proposal. Funnily enough, the voters, by and large, felt the same way. They thought that by being given a proposal, they had a say in what the decision would be. What actually turned out to be the case as we discovered through the weekend, was that Arbitrum had written up basically a summary of decisions it had already made and in some ways already implemented and was asking the community to ratify its decision as if ratification meant that it was a retroactive thing. Now, ratification isn't. You can't implement a treaty before the treaty is ratified. By the same way, you can't spend a budget before the budget is ratified. So it's just really infuriating to me to see the way that these actors who are purporting to be decentralized really play with language and manipulate people, quite honestly, into just trying to rubber stamp the decisions that they had already made. So Danny, uh, what do you think this means for Arbitrum? Is this a kind of loss of credibility for that project? You know, in the heat of the weekend, when a lot of people who were unfortunately as online as I was, were reacting to this, the talk was all about They've spent two years building up this community goodwill, and now they're squandering it in a day. And they're going to have to rebuild community trust, this, that, the other thing. 
I feel like now, one day later, the dust is settling. Arbitrum is making some concessions. The extent of those concessions is unclear, but at the very least, there will be more votes. I think that people are going to forget. I think that people are going to move on, and they're not going to. They're going to just decide that it's better to stay quiet and let the token do what the token will do, which is hopefully, in their opinion, go up because it went down big time this weekend. And just sit on the sidelines and forget. And that, to me, is just another example of why crypto governance is a farce, and I hate it, and I haven't seen anyone do it properly. I don't even know what doing it properly would be, but this ain't it. Exactly. I think that having multiple people on the multi-sig being able to approve of these token flows and voting mechanisms is where we're going wrong. And I know that's a hot take. I know it's a hot take to put all of that power into one person to decide. However, I believe that when you have however many leaders who are able to approve some of these transactions, people who have different roles in this quote unquote C-suite or whatever this DAO or DeFi protocol might have established these people to like whatever role they're taking on, I think that it's too many parties involved, too many people who have different intentions. So are you saying that the solution to our governance crisis where decentralized autonomous organizations are not really being decentralized and certainly not autonomous is to have a single person, a single point of failure even, that is entrusted with the ability to move tokens? Is that what you're saying? Yes, I am saying that. I'm saying that we are taking the concept of a DAO and completely centralizing it. I think that the concept of DAO is... A farce to begin with. And in that way, I guess I agree with you because maybe it would just be right? better for my own sanity to have, just, let's just drop the whole DAO thing and let's have a company and a company as <laughs> a CEO. And you know what? There, the CEO hires people that, to make decisions too. But, but everyone understands that there's a structure and that's that. But with a DAO, with, when you have these DAOs that are in a chicken and egg problem, right? Because Arbitrum was saying, we have a chicken and egg problem. We needed to create a foundation to foster the DAO, but we couldn't create a foundation without the money to create it, but we couldn't give the money without the DAO. It's like a whole back and forth thing. And so their solution was to give the money to the foundation and then pose the question of, should we give money to the foundation to the DAO as if it was At that point, why do you have a DAO? Literally, why do you have a DAO? It makes no sense. You have a DAO because... That's what the community wants. And it doesn't make sense with what the community wants. The community didn't build Arbitrum. The community didn't do anything Mm -hmm. to create the code or any of this. And this is credit to Off-Chain Labs and to the Arbitrum Foundation. They're the ones who did the work. But now they're engaging in this weird charade where they pretend like the community has power. And you know what? I I will say, I don't think there was malice here, but there was gross negligence and high incompetence to pose a question to a DAO over decisions that had already been made. We're at the point in crypto where I feel like a lot of people are just sticking DAOs into their projects for no good reason, without a lot of thought, just because they feel like they owe their community members and token holders some way to have a say in what's going on when at the end of the day, there's not really much they can do. There's no power. There's no real value to actually being a part of this organization. It's almost just like this casino, this like carousel of companies just like tacking on DAOs for for no good reason. I mean, I think people need to really sit down and actually think about what a DAO is going to accomplish. And if it's not decentralized, don't even think about it. I mean, there is a good reason, right, for having a DAO, and that is to encourage people to participate. And 
you know, by saying you're a DAO, then uh, millions of people think they can benefit and, and have some participation in it. So that's presumably why they do it. Um, but it's not a very ethical way of doing it, because if you're offering the appearance of participation and not providing uh, real voting power, then it's not really a DAO. So I agree with you. Exactly. That's what really gets that to me. For a final thought on this, I mean, the Arbitrum Foundation was saying, well, look, Polygon has all this money. Solana has all this money. Uh, Starkware has all this money. And they have this money because when they created the token, they said, we're going to have this whatever percent earmarked aside for ourselves. And, you know, it's Arbitrum saying, look over there. They didn't ask their community if that was okay. Well, it's, in my opinion, worse what Arbitrum did because Arbitrum basically made the same decision and then posed it to the community as if it was the community's decision. And now the fact that they went and they said, well, look, we're actually giving people a chance. No, you're not. You're just pretending like the people have a choice. And that's a lot worse. That's a lot worse than just making a decision and having that be what is done. Because it's all about power. And if you have the power as the organization to do the thing, then just do the thing. Don't pretend like other people are doing the thing for you. That is extremely unethical, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I agree. And it really is all about the power. And I think with that, I think we're going to move on to our next segment. So uh, Frank Shaparo tweeted over the weekend, um, why does every layer two need a token? To which I replied, for our entertainment. Um, so <laughs> that is why. That's good. Right. Last week on Camp's Corner, we talked about Metaverse Fashion Week a little bit. We talked about predictions. We talked about what we thought was going to happen. But today on Camp's Corner, we're running it back. And we have a very special guest, founder and chief Metaverse officer of Journey, none other than Kathy Hackle, godmother of the Metaverse herself. Super excited to be chatting with you today. Thanks for being back here. I'm super excited to be back. Awesome. All right. So, Kathy, I want to talk to you a little bit about Metaverse Fashion Week. And I know you just came on Coindesk TV last week to talk about it. And I want to know what you thought about the entire week looking back as we're just a few days out of it. Yeah, I think it was a it was an interesting moment to have Metaverse Fashion Week, right? Because you're in the middle of this what I call Metaverse cool down, right? Uh, let's be honest, there's this cool down moment happening. You've got a crypto winter, <laughs> right? You've got the tech sector just, you know, layoff after layoff. So it's a really interesting time. I will say, obviously, last year was the first time they had Metaverse Fashion Week, right? So there's that excitement of the first time of it being something, you know, a novelty. So this year it was more like, okay, what brands are going to be involved? What's going to happen? But I think a lot of the brands that showed up, showed up in full force, you know, they put their all into it. So mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it's strange time to have the event. You know, that's just the current climate we're in. Absolutely, absolutely. And especially right now in the NFT space, it's very interesting kind of to see what's happening in terms of marketplaces such as Blur and OpenSea really competing for market share and a marketplace such as Blur that is really attracting pro traders. You know, there's not a huge intersection there when it comes to these digital collectibles. So I want to ask you a little bit about the collectible element there and in terms of digital fashion as a collectible. You know, we've talked about its different use cases before, but where did you see the value in that on display this week? Well, I'll tell you a personal use case. I'm a collector myself, right? I believe in virtual couture. So not so much virtual fashion for the masses. I love that and I do some of that as well. But for my personal collection, I'm trying to focus on virtual couture. So virtual items that are one-of-ones, you know, that might not be a mass market thing. So for example, the CFDA had their 60th anniversary celebration last December. 
And they did a collaboration with designers like Tommy Hilfiger and Donna Karen and Michael Kors and Vivian Tam and Willie Chavriri and a whole bunch of amazing folks. And they launched these one-of-one NFTs. So I decided to actually bid on two of those. And I won the Vivian Tam one-of-one NFT and the Willie Chavaria one-of-one NFT. And the Vivian Tam one actually is a beautiful gown that I worked with BNV to create Brand New Vision to their metaverse ateliers mm-hmm. to create this, the adaptation of the NFT for Decentraland. And I wore this one-of-one beautiful dress, right? It's a collector's item. To me, it's a historical artifact. That's how a lot of people who are collectors in this space view a lot of these things. So yeah, I mean, I showed up to the virtual red carpet wearing a one-of-one dress that no one else had, that I'm the only person in the world that has. So I'm curious where you were entering Metaverse Fashion Week, which platforms, what was the experience like, if you can just speak to what, what events, what were some of the highlights, what were you up to? There were tons of panels, there were parties, there were runway shows. There were many different ways to enter. So I started in the central land because that's kind of like the main hub uh, from last year and the main hub in some ways from this year. So, you know, connected my MetaMask, went in, found in the map. It was easier to find places this year, I have to say. They had like a little button that told you like what was going on. Mm -hmm. It was much easier. I agree. (laughs) I agree. I was not totally lost and confused. Just some generic avatar running in circles. It was a little bit better. I agree. Yeah, it was a little bit better. Still, you know, some glitches. Sometimes I would get kicked out, had to come back in, those sorts of things. So yeah, I think the big thing was, for example, when Tommy Hilfiger, you could go and kind of portal into maybe some of their other places, right? So that was a big thing for me. I was like, okay, great. This is fantastic. I'm able to portal around. But yeah, I mean, I started in the central land, then went over to Spatial, had a, real, a lot of fun in Spatial. I mean, visually, I love Spatial Hope. It's visually up to me. Personally, it's a little bit more appealing than Decentraland. So so yeah. I logged on to Decentraland during Metaverse Fashion Week. I wanted to take my avatar around to see a few of these different brand activations. I'm not going to lie. It was a little bit difficult. The user experience, and I, this is a, the, we share our opinions on the show. I'm just going to say it. I had a difficult time. I wasn't really vibing with what was going on there. And we're obviously at a very early point in the Metaverse where we're not really seeing a ton of real robust user experience on some of these platforms. I'm curious how you think that impacts the actual, not just the week itself, but the actual fashion there and its display and how people are actually able to interact with it. Well, it does impact the fashion in some ways. And I do think that things were a little bit more advanced this year from the designs from last year. So I will say that, but there's still a limitation, right? And how, how big these files can be, you know, the count on them, like there's still limitations. So you can't really, you know, you can't do a lot of great stuff. Even like my dress, which is beautiful. I mean, it looked great, but it still didn't look like it should, right? But yeah, I would say that there there are still limits there, especially I would say that the Central Land platform has some limitations that maybe some of the other platforms don't have as much from a visual standpoint. Mm-hmm. So I could definitely see that. And I still think, you know, it's still not easy to navigate, right? This is still not the easiest thing to do. Then again, the people that are going to go to Metaverse Fashion Week are probably people that are in the fashion industry or in the virtual fashion industry or, you know, part of Web3 and really into fashion. So some of them, I would say most of those people are willing to live through the the difficult parts of it, right, to experience most of it. So, But if, you know, if I was a first time user that had never experienced this and try to go, like, of course, I would definitely see a lot, a lot of friction. Totally. Well, I think especially this year. It's not really a time when there are a lot of first users, right? I mean, it's just the nature of the bear market. A lot of people who are sticking around are sticking around for reasons that they've, A, been in the space for a long time, 
or B, are super bullish on it and want to see this period through. So I'm curious to ask about the brands themselves that were there. And if you saw any changes, not just between the actual brands themselves, but the brand activations and some of the integrations that the brands were actually able to execute having this presence there. Yeah, I mean, definitely like Tommy Hilfiger, I think, came bigger than last year. You know, for me, it has to become more multi-platform for it to be bigger and more successful. So I personally, and I don't have any vision into this, right? I'm not part of the organizing committee um, this year. So, and I'm not part of it next year, as far as I know. But I would love to see more, you know, platforms like Fortnite Creative, right? Maybe it's an island that they do there. Maybe it's something in Roblox. Maybe it's something with Pokemon Go or, you know, still friction. I hope that it's bigger and I hope that it's multi-platform next year. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. So it's very interesting that you talk about multi-platform because something that at least I think we've, we've talked about in the past, we've been grappling with is whether or not a lot of these technologies are going to eventually become one large interoperable space, this open metaverse, or still operate as a bunch of walled gardens in which you can have a rich, robust experience. It just only exists in that exact location. So what you mean by multi-platform, if there's interoperability there? So I think that the mistake there is that some people were saying interoperability, interoperability. So multi-platform does not mean interoperability. Multi-platform just meant that I was able to go from here to there, but it doesn't mean that what I was wearing would transfer everywhere or that Mm. it would look the same or what have you, right? Right. So I think it's, you know, if you were wearing your Ready Player Me, you know, possibly, yes, you're going to be moving around. It's going to, you might have it on different platforms. But like, for example, my Vivian Tam dress is not portable. Like I couldn't take it everywhere with me. It's a great, a great example, right? I don't have it in all the other platforms. So interoperability per se, I don't think we really had that in Metaverse Fashion Week. Right. Whoever solves interoperability, which in my perspective hasn't been solved. Right. Um, so people are like, oh, we solved it. I'm like, really? I don't know. I do think my vision aligns, aligns in some ways with this idea and this concept that we're going to have, yes, an open decentralized metaverse of sorts, a future that is that is partly open and decentralized. There's going to be some type of hybrid model. I don't know what that looks like. And then there are going to be wall gardens that remind wall gardens for one reason or another. Right. So I think we, we need to kind of be realistic on what this potential future looks like. So I think there's going to be space for everything. I hope that a big majority is open and decentralized. Right. But I think that there will be kind of a weird space in the middle. And then there will be definitely closed things that need to remain closed for one reason or another, whether it's defense or what have you, sensitive information, intelligence, what have you. Intelligence as in, you know, as in spy stuff and <laughs> not as in artificial mm-hmm. intelligence. So that's kind of how I envision it happening from a fashion standpoint. I mean, both cases could be made that, you know, an open decentralized metaverse is great for virtual fashion, interoperability, transferability, you know, that would be great. Other people say, well, maybe not because then, you know, you sell something and then they can wear it everywhere. But that's how the physical world is anyway. So. Mm -hmm. So back to the fashion element. After the end of Metaverse Fashion Week, what were some of your thoughts? What are you excited about in the coming months, in the coming year? And if you have any ideas for what you hope out of Metaverse Fashion Week next year, you know, improvements, potential constructive criticism, whatnot. Yeah, I mean, I think it was really well organized. I love how they use community. I love how there were a lot of up and coming virtual fashion designers that were featured across a lot of spaces, a lot of collaborations, even the bigger brands. What I did hear from a lot of the brands that I work with, not all of the ones I work with, but in just in general, some of them were like, thinking about it at the beginning of the year, but then when things started to get worse with crypto and, and this metaverse cooldown, they were like, eh, I don't know if we don't think it's the right time, we're going to hold off. Some of them were already like, okay, we're focusing on AI, right? Because that's the shiny mm-hmm. object. Um, so th- th- I think there was that kind of issue maybe. 
that some brands were like, it's just not the right moment. We're going to wait and see, maybe see what happens next year. So I, I find that really interesting. So in my perspective, it's like, how does Metaverse Fashion Week move and transform itself as we head into this further convergence of physical and digital, right? Beyond just a web-based experience. And then what happens, you know, in the future? So so yeah, I'm really thinking through that. What happens to fashion when when the world becomes a wearable world? You're so right. I mean, even though the term metaverse has existed for about 30 years since mm -hmm. Neil Stevenson coined it, you know, we didn't actually see an actual platform for it until a few years ago. So who knows in terms of the rapid pace at which technology is built and expands what that might mean for fashion, for mm -hmm. collectibles. It's it's amazing. Yeah. One thing I will mention is if you go to Fashion Week online, which usually has like the calendar and information, they actually include now Metaverse Fashion Week. So from a fashion industry perspective, that was a big signal to me. I'm like, oh, wow. So like if I'm going to go and see what the calendar is for, you know, London Fashion Week, oh, I, it also had a calendar for Metaverse Fashion Week. Nice. So, you know, pretty interesting that that part is slowly becoming much more part of fashion. I think we're going to see a lot more tech on the runway. Is it all going to be Web3? Possibly not. There's still going to be some Web3 for sure. Is it all going to be Metaverse? Possibly not. But there's going to be a lot of more, a lot more tech in September than there was in February for sure. Totally. Well, that'll be interesting to watch out for the summer ahead of September. And thank you so much for joining, Kathy. And we'll keep an eye out for exciting Web3 digital fashion coming in the next few yeah. months. And at Consensus. At Consensus. I cannot wait. I'm excited. I would say keep your eye out for, I mean, I'm working on a lot of things around connecting jewelry, physical jewelry to NFTs. And, uh, and I have some amazing things coming also for New York Fashion Week. So We'll see. Exciting. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Yay. But I'll definitely see a consensus. All right. That was Kathy Hackle, founder and chief metaverse officer of Journey. It's just Cam now. I just want to take a second reflecting on my experience in Metaverse Fashion Week. I spent some time in Decentraland just to make it clear. I only went to Decentraland because it's the one I'm most familiar with. I went to Metaverse Fashion Week in Decentraland last year. Now, I know that a lot more brands and platforms have entered the space, but I find that the biggest issue with this event right now is the fact that it's just so difficult to use the platform. The user experience is not well suited for avatars wearing digital collectibles, trading digital collectibles, being able to experience some of these pop-ups. Now, I'm not saying anything against the brands that were in there. I mean, I think that some of these ideas and activations were really well thought out and that people had a real sense of how to engage people with Web3 technologies, especially. But I think that being able to translate that in a platform like Decentraland didn't necessarily go to plan or how I expected. I think that other people tended to feel this way too, at least in conversations with my editors in deciding how are we going to cover this. And Definitely an interesting idea. I think that it's something that will only continue to get better. But for now, I'm not sure it's really the way that we're going to onboard a bunch of people to Web3 if this is what we're showing. If Metaverse Fashion Week is supposed to serve as an example of digital fashion in real use cases and being engaging, I don't think it served its purpose. But who knows what will happen next year? That was Cam's Corner. Thanks for joining. Join Coindesk's Consensus 2023, where Web3 meets IRL, happening April 26th through 28th in Austin, Texas. Consensus is the industry's only event bringing together all sides of crypto, Web3, and the metaverse. Immerse yourself in all that blockchain technology has to offer creators, builders, founders, entrepreneurs, and more. 
Use code CARPE to get 15% off your pass. Visit coindesk.com slash consensus or check the link in the show notes. All right. So it's late on a Saturday night. There's nothing going on. You hear a ping <laughs> from your computer. You open it up. Freak. I don't know. Wait, it's a ping. You hear a ping, ping from your computer. Late on a Saturday night, you open it up. It's Discord. There's several people typing the worst thing possible in a Discord server. You're scratching for the light. You enter the channel looking for something, and then you realize this isn't a Discord. This is the Schiller Show. Ben Schiller. Scam and I both have our little sections. I want to hear what, what's on your mind. What's grinding your gears this week? What, what, what are you working on? Well, thanks for including me. Yeah, so uh, last week, Coindesk published something that it doesn't normally publish, which is uh, an official editorial. And the last time we did this, just to give you an idea, was 2021. And the editorial was really about what we think is a coordinated crackdown by regulatory agencies and the federal government here in the US on crypto. So we felt like as an organization that covers the industry and believes fundamentally in its principles that we really need to take a stand against this and the way in which the US is regulating and not regulating crypto as being unhelpful. And we really see a lot of companies now either going overseas or considering going overseas because of the uncertainty that they face. And uh, we felt as an organization, we needed to draw a line in the sand and speak up for crypto and its larger potential, and particularly the way in which crypto aligns very closely with principles that the United States is supposed to be founded on. Uh, that is uh, freedom, the rule of law, and uh, some certainty in capitalism and uh, you know the way in which you conduct your economic affairs. And I think we can see in crypto that's not happening at the moment. We have people making decisions that are arbitrary and unfair, and so we want to take a stand against that. So Ben, can you clarify what some of these different regulatory agencies are, first of all, and what some examples of rulings they've made against crypto companies forcing them to move abroad in order to continue to operate. Okay, so the main agency is obviously the SEC. The big question in crypto regulation has always been whether tokens that are issued and traded on exchanges like Coinbase are actually securities. And agencies like the SEC has been dancing around this issue for many years, making various contradictory statements as to whether these tokens are securities uh, without giving any clear guidance as to uh, whether they are or not, and not actually going forward with uh, enforcement. And we're seeing in the wake of FTX, with political pressure being placed upon Gary Gensler, who's the chair of the SEC, to act tough, that they've gone on the spree of cracking down on exchanges like Coinbase suddenly and arbitrarily and forcing them to backtrack. I will, I will say at this point, you know, this is certainly the House opinion, right? But this is the opinion of the Coindesk editorial board, which is essentially a committee of the leaders of the organization. It is not, however, the position of the newsroom or, or for that matter, not a position of the newsroom. The newsroom is separate from that process to an extent. I will say, though, I personally don't buy into the coordinated conspiracy aspect of Operation Choke Point. Having said that, it is an assault. Like this morning, I was watching a documentary on the Waco siege, and that siege ended when the feds sent in tanks with tear gas on the ends of the tanks, on the ends of the barrels, to like knock through walls and drop the tear canisters in. As they were barreling tanks into this compound, they were playing over the loudspeakers. This is not an assault. Now, sure, maybe they're not shooting guns at you. They're just r ramming through your walls with tanks with tear gas canisters. 
the lingo doesn't really matter at that point. So even if I don't believe that there's coordinated thing, but still there are lots of different actions that are happening at the same time and it has the same effect. Right. So I think this is a difference without any difference to it. And whether we think it's a conspiracy with five guys sitting in a room deciding what to do in a coordinated manner, or whether they're acting independently uh, in a kind of decentralized way, it really makes no difference because the industry is under attack. And the important point is that all this enforcement action and the debanking of the crypto industry is happening in an arbitrary and, and unpredictable way. And that's really the problem. And so not to put too light a point on it, it's, it's all about uh, Congress not doing its job properly. I mean, other countries, many other countries have had a legislative process where they've decided what's best for the industry. They've set clear rules. You know, Japan, for instance, had uh, rules for exchanges five, seven, eight years ago. And the US has still yet to do anything substantive in Congress to uh, set rules for the road. And that's why we're in a situation where Gary Gensler effectively has so much power to decide what and what shouldn't go. And he's uh, making rules up as he goes along (laughs) based upon, you know, sometimes his own political instincts and motivations. And it's just a thoroughly uh, unhelpful way to regulate an industry that is uh, the future of the internet. It is potentially the future of finance. This is not the opinion of everyone on staff. And, and we don't want to speak for, for you as a reporter or an editor here. But you know, senior leadership here felt that as an organization that covers this industry and generally champions its values, that we need to stick up for these principles at least. But you know, when the industry that you cover is under coordinator attack and it's so arbitrary, then uh, we felt that we really need to take a stand and, and say where we stood. So I want to bring in that quote that Mark Hochstein, our executive editor of Consensus, said when he came on Carpe a few months ago. He said, crypto is like a beautiful horse but you can only see the flies buzzing around its behind. And when he talks about you, he means Congress and a lot of the regulatory agencies. And I think that that quote really resonates with what's going on right now, except rather than just a few flies, it's a massive, massive swarm that's almost trying to kill the horse, essentially, one little bite at a time. But the horse is going to run. The horse is going to run. The horse is going to keep going. It's going to make its way out of the U.S. wherever it goes. And Ben, I'm curious if you could talk about some of the implications of that. As crypto is going overseas, what does that look like? What does that mean? What do you anticipate if we're continuing this regulatory regime that we've seen only push crypto away? How is that going to look in the U.S. versus other countries? Yeah, I mean, it means there are going to be fewer developers here. It means that there's a lower tax base from these companies. It means that we're losing leadership of this important industry that has so much potential. And uh, I think you're completely right. We're regulating the whole industry as if it was FTX, uh, and it isn't. And, and also, interestingly, I think in the last few months, we've really seen the politicization of crypto. You know, And since FTX, we've just seen people, for instance, uh, Elizabeth Warren, who's the senator of Massachusetts, one of the senators of Massachusetts, came out recently in her new Senate campaign platform saying that she was leading an anti-crypto army, and which sounds interesting as a statement, but uh, really actually makes no sense. And, you know, to write off millions of people as being bad actors, which is basically what she's doing there, seems incredible when the industry is made up of a diverse group of people, some of which are bad, some of which are good. and But to paint them all as the same and, and as all as crypto bros like Sam Bankman-Fried, it's just, it's just ridiculous and injurious to our future. You know? I take the anti-crypto army almost as a compliment, right? Because for the longest time, crypto wasn't important enough for people to pay attention. 
Now Liz Warren feels the need to pay attention to the extent that she's willing to stake part of like her political identity and her campaign identity to this notion of being an anti-crypto person. That's her right to have that opinion. It might be the wrong opinion according to other people's opinion, but the fact that she's even formulating and verbalizing that opinion means that crypto is growing to a state where it can't be ignored. So the only response has to be for other politicians to have their pro-crypto armies to be quite straightforward about well, it. Well, but we shouldn't be getting into some pro and anti. But you can't uh, not you know, get into pro match based upon stereotypes. But this you is can't not serious not, policy like making. It's not, pol- it's not policy. Isn't a serious game. This is a game where everything becomes politicized. Right? There's nothing that it doesn't. The only things that don't become politicized are like social security and things that used to be politicized but have been ingrained for so long that they're now a third rail. Crypto well, but is, there's, there's, politic, there's politicization where people have a substantive argument based upon the facts and they disagree. But when you come out with a slogan like, uh, I'm going to lead an anti-crypto army, uh, that is not a serious position to have because it's a kind of meaningless sloganeering statement that actually just writes off millions of people as all that's the same. That's how and politics not all works. That's how politics works. I know, works, but that's just then. cynicism. I know it's not. It's pragmatism. It's pragmatism. And the response is that we need to have a pro-crypto army. We, or we need to have you know, proponents and, and people in Congress who are advocating for crypto because Liz Warren is a politician, just like all the politicians are politicians. And politicians play their game because that's just how the game is played. And I agree, it's an unfortunate reality. But we well, are, I think you're just adding fuel to the fire here, Danny, uh, and, and you're part of the problem here. Uh, is the solution for crypto to be a nonpartisan issue? And if it's a nonpartisan issue, then how, do, how does meaningful legislation come to pass? Well, the solution, as it always is, is for people to calm down and take the politics out of it and have a serious substantive debate over what the actual issues are. Just by sloganizing and writing off people in, in stereotypical ways like uh, Warren is doing is just thoroughly unhelpful. And it doesn't really matter if you're pro-crypto or anti-crypto. It's all the same. It's, it's unserious people being unserious. Well, that's not the position that a lot of normal people at home who are just going to vote in the upcoming election think. I mean, a lot of people probably don't understand, you know, all the ins and outs of crypto, how decentralized blockchain networks actually operate and what value they can bring. Or if they're anti-crypto, then hopefully they've actually understood why they're anti-crypto and have a good and actual legitimate stance against it. However, I think it's I mean, Danny, I agree a little bit with what you're saying, but I think it is frightening to have such public messaging about being anti-crypto and kind of just taking the whole entire industry and throwing a blanket over it because that's the message she's sending and that's frightening. So crypto's had like 10 years now to have had those, let's call it the nonpartisan time of crypto where it was still developing, people were still organizing. And we didn't see Congress succeed in passing anything meaningful related to improving crypto policy in the U.S. So I don't find it too concerning now that there are politicians that are developing an anti-crypto thesis because we haven't yet developed in Congress enough of a pro-crypto thesis to get anything done. So I feel like this might even serve the purposes of crypto to be a wake-up call to get something through, to get something done. That's how that's how stuff gets done in politics. And, you know, we're trying to map the decentralized, purist ethos of crypto onto Congress, which is an organization that is not really driven by ideals. It's driven by something else. And in, if 
crypto is going to succeed in that realm. It's going to, to an extent, the people who advocate for it are going to have to play that game. Well, I think that's a pretty interesting hot take, Danny, to say that a influential senator like Elizabeth Warren coming out with this completely fallacious and nonsensical campaign slogan is going to be helpful for crypto in the long run. I mean, that's kind of ridiculous. Well, it's only helpful if crypto does something about it, right? If not, then and crypto doesn't, then obviously crypto will lose. So Ben, how is Coindesk furthering this debate? We're doing a very anti-Warren thing, which is at our consensus festival. We're forming something called the Crypto Policy Forum. And this is for serious people, unlike Warren, to come together and discuss uh, these serious issues in a serious way. So it's a series of workshops dedicated to important controversial topics like the energy debate, for instance, around Bitcoin's energy usage, for instance, some of the regulatory questions that we've just been discussing, and and really to come to some fair-minded consensus as to the way forward on those issues and to suggest some uh, recommendations to policymakers about ways forward. And so we really want consensus this year not to be just a place where people stand on stage and make pronouncements uh, and comments about the industry, but really for the industry to come together in a more consensual way and develop proposals going forward. So there's really actually sort of an outcome, a policy outcome. As part of that process, we're going to be producing a report which will come out on the 22nd of May, which is going to be called uh, Catchly, the Consensus of Consensus Report, which is basically, as the name suggests, these recommendations that will come out of these workshops. So um, we're really trying to be helpful here. Funny enough, Ben, that you talk about the consensus consensus report. I'm actually writing the chapter on DAOs. God help you. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm down to do it. Well, the thing is, is that it's not so much about like DeFi DAOs. It's also like social DAOs. So I'm going to be listening to some of these conversations in real time and hearing from people about what we should do about not just regulating DAOs, but how to have decentralized governance successfully. So kind of trying somehow to find an answer to the question that we were talking about earlier. So should be a time. Thank you for doing God's work, Kim. My pleasure. So that was another episode of the Carpe Consensus podcast. Thanks for listening. Uh, You can check us out on Spotify and Apple and all good podcast networks. And just a reminder that we are having the Consensus Festival at the end of uh, April. That's between April the 26th and the 28th going to be a really good time down there. Some good discussions, going to get to meet with old friends and new friends and uh, have a drink or two and have a good, good time in one of the best cities in the United States. So uh, please join us there and we'll see you there. Thank you, Cam. And thank you, Danny. We're wrapping up now. So if you like us, if you like vibing with us, listening to what we have to say, if you're not scared, if you're not super spooked by Danny's Dungeons intro or whatever, please leave us a review. Let us know how we're doing. Let us know what you like. Let us know what you want to talk about. We want to get some good content in front of all of you. Bye. Carpe Consensus is a Coindesk production. Executive produced by Jared Schwartz and produced and edited by Eleanor Paul. Have any questions or comments? Email us at podcasts at coindesk.com. Subject line, Carpe Consensus. Thanks for listening and see you next week.